Oh, I don't have the dinosaur attack, the, the owl. That's a nice owl there. Are we going to be able to just... Oh, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> Kara, here, put this guy on the floor. Put him, put him sitting on the floor. Okay. Yeah, say your final goodbyes. You'll see these guys again in 30 minutes, though. Coco? Oh, that's sweet. I got a little Coco. Nice. Okay, you guys can head upstairs. Don't worry, you guys will get a Sunday where you can bring in your favorite stuffies and you can show it off, do a little church show and tell. <clears throat> I'm going to read our passage this morning and then kind of introduce our series. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Very short passage, but its length betrays its depth. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. So we're in a series called Insurrection. And we're moving through the Gospel of Mark, and we're discovering Jesus' gospel agenda to overthrow the forces of sin and evil in this world, to be an agent of restoration and healing. But we're also seeing how this agenda plays out in ways that might confuse us or seem strange. Uh, Jesus' agenda, to almost everyone he comes into con contact with, um, veers off the track of what they thought things should look like. When God's at work in the world, surely it's going to look like this. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes along, and everybody who has an interaction with him leaves, to a greater or lesser extent, scratching their heads. Where is this ministry going? He's, he's teaching about the kingdom. He's showing the kingdom. But why does he do things this way? Why is he teaching these particular things? Does he really expect us to believe that? And so as the Gospel of Mark unfolds, you have all these different groups of people trying to solve the Jesus puzzle. How do all these pieces that don't seem like they can fit together based on my understanding of what things are supposed to look like, how, how do we get these to look, how do we get these to, to, to come together and to form a cohesive picture of Jesus? And here we are in Mark 10, 13 to 16, and we find this explosive story Jesus welcoming little children and blessing them. Now, this story, you can put up that picture, Marvin, this story has become little more than kind of a hallmark moment within the Christian subculture. But it's actually an account that lies at the very heart of Jesus' kingdom insurgency against the principalities and powers. So this story tends to get relegated to Oh, Jesus loves kids. And that is clearly an application of this text. But it is a fairly superficial application of this text because we see something that the, um, 
when we understand this passage well, it should strike us as very subversive and very shocking. And it should force us to begin to turn over in our minds our expectations of who God is, what his kingdom's about, what's our role in that kingdom, because that is absolutely what it would have done for those who are part of this account. So let's move into verse 13. People, presumably parents or caregivers, maybe grandparents, were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuke them. Parents wanting to have their kids blessed by a, a, a prominent rabbi, that was pretty common in the first century, pretty common today, right? If someone's going to go and stick their kid in front of the Pope or in front of uh, uh, a political figure like Justin Trudeau, uh, there, there has been always this uh, sense of we want someone uh, of, of influence to touch our child and hopefully confer, even if it's a superstitious thing, confer some kind of blessing upon them. However, the disciples who are very eager to get on with this business of establishing the kingdom of God, setting up the kingdom, they don't have time for little kids. They don't have time for these people because these little kids and the families that they're a part of, they don't hold any political power. They don't hold any social influence. And so to them, this is just an interruption in Jesus' agenda. And so it comes very naturally to them to, tell, to shut this down, to say to the parents bringing their children, this isn't appropriate. Jesus has more important things to do. Don't bother Jesus. Don't interfere with the important kingdom work that Jesus is doing by, you know, having these little kids on them and all the snot. And, oh, don't just keep them away. Keep them away. Verse 14 says, when Jesus saw this happening, he was indignant. And the word in Greek that is translated as indignant means kind of angry. And, it, and it's a pretty, it's a strong word. It, it's uh, I think the translators cop out a little bit by saying indignant because that's a really fancy way of saying angry. And it kind of, um, it may be, uh, it's well intended, but I think it tries to rescue us from a picture where Jesus is like actually ticked because that's how the word is used. Um, in a few verses in the coming weeks, we're going to find out that James and John are arguing with Jesus. They're asking, can I be on your right and on your left when you come into your kingdom? When you establish your, 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 your um, political powerhouse, Jesus, and your, and your core team, uh, of course you're the president, but could I be your vice and my brother be your, your co-vice chair? And it says that the disciples were indignant. The other disciples were indignant with James and John when they heard that this was happening. So this is a word that means a sense of like, are you kidding me? Like on a gut level, this is so upsetting. It's angering. Now I know that we don't, it's hard for us to hold together Jesus as this model of the perfect human being who also gets angry. And I think that's why the translators kind of shift into, well, he was indignant. I did a Google search for angry Jesus. And this is the picture. That's as close as you get to any kind of normalized picture of Jesus. And that's as close as you get to a picture where Jesus is indignant. And it just looks like he hasn't had his morning coffee. It's not really anger. It's just like, 
wait, don't assault me with noise and stuff. I need to kind of just have coffee, pray, do my morning devotional. This is like mildly frustrated Jesus. But I think that that shows us that we are not uncomfortable with strong emotions like Jesus, even, or strong emotions like anger, even though Jesus was. Being angry is not a sin. In the Christian subculture, that, that idea can, is often communicated, that being angry is a sin. But in Ephesians 4.26, Paul writes to the, the church in Ephesus, and he says, In your anger, do not sin. When you're angry, don't sin. See, when we see something wrong in the world, maybe in ourselves, in our relationships, some, some kind of injustice or racist, racism or exploitation, bullying, violence, anger is the appropriate response to that. As image bearers of God, there's something deep within us that should be able to identify that and say, that's not right. And I don't just look at it and think, that's not right. Bleh, what are you going to do? That reaction is an ungodly reaction. To see evil and injustice in the world and to be angry is a godly reaction. Jesus was angry, but he was angry at the right things for the right reasons. And he never sinned in his anger. And I know that's a very tight rope to walk. But that's what we're called to do because I don't think it's uh, healthy or helpful for us as Christians to think, well, under all circumstances, when I feel or experience anger, I just need to figure out how to uh, ignore it, dismiss it, push it away, suppress it, because it's something wrong or sinful. In your anger, do not sin. Anger has a place in a godly life. So Jesus sees this injustice happening, this power played by the disciples, this dismissal of these little children, and he gets angry at that. And he says, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I am always haunted by the, uh, the line, do not hinder them. And I think I've mentioned this before here when I've taught in a similar passage, but to me the inference of that passage is children want to come to Jesus. And it's often we, as adults, who interfere in that process. Children are naturally drawn to big questions about God and uh, meaning and the universe. They have a natural bent towards wanting to discover what's behind the nature of things and who's behind the nature of things. But we are the ones that often hinder children. How do we do that? I wrote down a few. You can discuss some of the other ones in small groups or in discussion groups this week. I think we can hinder children from coming to Jesus through busyness. We're just filling up our schedules as much as we can, and we're just training them to think through how do we execute today and do all the demands that are placed on them. We're not giving them time and space to reflect and to share and just to have unhurried times uh, with us where we can teach them about Christ and about the gospel. Along with that, a failure to just prioritize our faith. We hope somewhere along the lines, maybe they come to Sunday school and they pick up along the way, but in our day-to-day -day life as, as parents or grandparents, caregivers, family, we're not looking for these little teachable moments to not sit down and lecture children, but just to give them a little window into the gospel, to serve them 
and to do so in Jesus' name, to love on them. <clears throat> I think hypocrisy is a big way that we can hinder children from coming to Jesus, children who grow up in a household where on Sunday morning, there's just a massive disconnect between what is displayed on Sunday morning versus what is experienced in the home. And I'll be the first to say, there is a, there is a disconnect there for our family. I'm on here on Sunday morning. And so, you know, this morning was a really challenging morning for us as a family. And I had to talk with Heather about it. We had to kind of work through it. And, you know, it's just one of those mornings where you just have to have that, that key scriptural verse going through your head, thou shalt not kill. And, and I could show up here, and I could talk about not hindering kids coming to the kingdom and all that stuff. And, and, um, and my kids can have this sense of like, well, an hour and a half ago, my dad was really ticked at me. And so it's not that there's going to be a disparity sometimes between how we project ourselves in public. Hopefully it's not inauthentic. But if that gap is too wide, if my kids don't see me repenting and apologizing, if they, if they don't see me ever cracking open my Bible, praying for and with them at home, me sharing my journey and how I'm growing, then the wider that gap is, the, the higher the wall becomes between them, certainly, and, and us, but also them and God. Because we become kind of the psychological archetypal um, first experiences of, of God made real to, to them. And they don't want to be close to a God who um, says one thing in public, but then privately is actually uh, cruel or aloof or abusive or exploitative. So our challenge as parents and grandparents is to, is to narrow that gap between um, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but just how our persona in public as a Christian versus our interaction around the dinner table and at bedside at night and as we're on hikes, we want to narrow that gap. And lastly, just a, f- a failure to love and affirm kids is just a, a huge way that we hinder them from coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, the kingdom of God is a really loaded term you can Google what is the kingdom of God, you're going to get a hundred different answers. But the ballpark, think of it as a kingdom is a sphere, is an area, usually a geographic area, where the, um, the authority and power of the king is recognized and everyone lives under that authority and power. They've given allegiance to the king and now they're learning to live under the authority and power of the king. So the kingdom of God means, is shorthand, is a, is a Jewish way of saying, wherever people live, under the authority and power of God, the kingdom of God has come. Because God is the king, and, and as we'll see as the New Testament unfolds, Jesus is the king. So wherever people are living under the authority and power of Jesus, that's the kingdom of God. Now, the, in the first century, in Jesus' time, what they want the kingdom of God to be is, is a, a political establishment. They want, they want it to be a political reality, a tangible political kingdom. Rome's in charge, but when the kingdom of God comes, that government, that political rule is going to be uh, usurped, and God's political agenda is going to be established. And then we're going to be able to live here and now under a political kingdom of God. And so you can see, 
and maybe the dots begin to connect where as Jesus teaches about the kingdom and shows people what the kingdom's going to look like, and it doesn't, the, the, the more Jesus teaches, the more he shows, it looks less and less like he's going to be some militaristic leader who's going to overthrow Rome and establish Israel as some kind of political dominant world power. This kingdom that he's talking about seems more demanding. It's more comprehensive than just a a new political ideology. And who has access to this kingdom? Now, if you were to ask first century Jews, who gets front of the line access to the kingdom of God, this political um, structure that's going to, we're, we're going to establish God's priorities through politics. Who gets to be who gets front-of-the-line access based on their aptitude to be a mover and shaker in that world? The politically connected, the powerful, the socially connected, the wealthy. Uh, certainly within uh, Judaism, the, the religiously, tre- I mean, tremendously devout, the Pharisees, maybe the Sadducees, but certainly the Pharisees, people who are religiously strict and focused, and we might in our society more or less say the same thing. Who, who are the movers and shakers that are going to really uh, change the world, that are really going to do big, important things? The powerful, the rich, the dynamic, the gifted, the beautiful. Look at who Jesus says the kingdom belongs to in the sense that this is the kind of person who gets front-of-the-line access to God's kingdom. The meek, the weak, the overlooked, the vulnerable, the small, the insignificant, the humble, and from a social perspective, the powerless, little children. And the word little children means exactly that, little children. It's, it's one word, but the translators add little because it really is referring to probably maybe as old as a toddler, where Jesus takes him in his arms. These aren't even eight or nine or ten-year-olds. These are little, dependent, powerless beings. And in the first century, children are not... Uh, we, we celebrate children in our context um, for all kinds of reasons, not bad reasons. Uh, and we understand the importance of childhood development, the first five years, and we want to just love bomb our kids and give our kids all the best advantages. That's, that's a very new phenomenon. In Jesus' day, children were the lowest on the pecking order. Even within Jewish culture, they were a gift from God, but they were still low on the social value hierarchy. And so when Jesus says, the kingdom that I'm about is going to be a kingdom that is first and foremost on offer to such as these, um, I'm not sure. I, I think I fail, and I really tried to stretch my imagination on this. I think I fail to to feel and to understand for myself how the disciples would have heard that, what their reaction would have been to that. This Messiah, who they thought was going to overthrow Rome, that's what they're hoping for, and he's talking, they're waiting for a warrior king, and this warrior king, the generals of his army are little kids? There had to have been people, whether or not it was in the disciples' hearts, there had to have been people on the on the outside looking into this encounter and hearing that and just scoffing at it at its utter absurdity. This just sounds like the most 
pie-in-the-sky, naive thing you could possibly say in a first-century context. How is God going to establish his kingdom in and through that kind of weakness? And then Jesus adds insult to injury, and he says, verse 15, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. Will never enter it. So the disciples' mindsets are about, okay, Jesus, warrior king, establish the kingdom. That's how we change the world. That's how we get things done. Oh, Jesus has chosen me. There's 12 of us, just like the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is making a new Israel. I'm super important. I'm going to be a part of this um, powerful, famous, go-down-in-history group of 12 that's doing all these things. We're going to establish the kingdom. God's chosen us through which to make the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. This is super exciting. And Jesus throws a wrench into that paradigm because he uses one word that causes them to say, wait, what? It's the record scratch. And the word is receive. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child won't even enter it. I hope you can begin to see just how perplexing these words would have been to these disciples. Notice Jesus says nothing about building the kingdom. He doesn't talk about accomplishing the kingdom. He doesn't even talk about establishing the kingdom. He talks about receiving it and then entering it. But the entering it is contingent upon the receiving it. So meaning, it's not like it's a barricaded um, uh, door with a huge wall and you have to kind of enter and move power through it. It's more when you receive it, then you enter it. It envelops you. It's a completely different picture than the disciples had in mind. One commentator said this, the kingdom of God, God's saving rule and power and grace in our lives, is not something that we make happen. It's fundamentally a gift. It's something that our creator gives to his people because of his great love for the world. And we don't walk into the kingdom by our own might. Rather, the kingdom embraces us. Our faith is not something that we work up in ourselves as though we must actively, sorry, and though we must actively trust in Christ, this act of trust by which we become kingdom citizens is best pictured as coming to the Savior with empty hands. So we come admitting that we have nothing to give to God, but that we're depend fully dependent on him and fully dependent on his unmerited favor. And so we open the empty hand of faith to receive God's promised blessing. We do not merit, we do not earn our heavenly citizenship. See, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as a gift. Because a little child, a child of that age, toddler and under, they can't earn anything. What comes into their life is all gift. It's all gift and grace. They don't have the capacity to help themselves. And if Jesus is somehow teaching that the only way into God's saving rule and reign, the only way into salvation, and I would argue not just in, but to sustain the Christian journey and to do it vibrantly, is to be in that posture of humble reception and to recognize at a fundamental level 
we're not making this happen. A lot of us are going to struggle with that. And a lot of us are going to have a hard time with that. Because almost no one here likes to receive a major gift. Small gifts we can take. Oh, that's nice, a card, a mug. I don't know about you, I have had times in my life where someone else has bestowed a gift of significance on myself or my family. And when that happens to you, watch what your heart does, because my heart automatically goes into, oh, now I've got to pay this person back. It's hard for me to receive that gift. It's very, very difficult. I want to justify the gift in my own mind by repaying back that person. Maybe not monetarily, but maybe in some other way. But if I were to succeed in that, it would negate the gift because now it's just a front-ended exchange. To receive a gift and a gift of tremendous worth is very, very difficult for a lot of us. If you know anything about the Enneagram, which is a personality inventory, I am number three. That's my confession this morning. You can go and Google what that means and all the ways that dysfunction weaves its way through my life and heart. Uh, But in a nutshell, that means that I define my worth via achievement. And so the message that threes kind of get growing up, they pick up from somewhere, is you are loved because of what you can do. You are loved based on what you can achieve, not because of who you are. So when love comes into your life, it's because of what you did. It's something that you achieved. People are responding to that. They're not responding to the, the gift of who you are. And so the root lie that I have to confront is that it's through my, it's, it's my achievements, big or small, but it's my own sense of achievement that makes me worthy to receive love. And so the reflex of my personality is always to achieve in order to attain validation. And that plays over into many areas of my life, including my relationship with God. I have to constantly be aware of all the different ways in which I'm serving God, not out of response to his grace, but I've slipped into maybe if I do these things, I'll allow myself to, to be okay with God loving me or because there'll be a part of me that's like, I, I've contributed a little bit. And here comes Jesus with this really offensive visual picture of holding little kids and saying, Jeff, if you won't receive the kingdom like one of them and not like God will meet you 80%, but what are you going to add to the pot? Sweeten the deal. It's just, it's all God and you have to receive that. And then in receiving that, I'll begin to transform you. And then I begin to live in response to it, but even that response is still about receiving my love and learning to live out of that love and not getting into the trap of trying to merit or earn or justify yourself before me. You have been justified. I see you as that little child just allow the kingdom to wash and successive waves into your life as you surrender into that truth. That is hard for me. But the kingdom of God is not a meritocracy. The best and the brightest, the most religious, most morally consistent, they don't have front-of-the-line access in God's kingdom. That's how the world would work. That's religion. You can't double down on religion to get into the kingdom. Jesus says, you have to become a child and receive it. And if you don't, you're kind of in trouble because that's the only way in. You can't enter it any other way. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that nobody can boast. That's going to be a familiar verse to a lot of people, but the scandal underneath that verse should strike you anew every, I don't know, three to ten years. There should be an element of that that the scandal of grace should hit you in new ways. God's work in my life, as the kingdom does get established in my life in ways big and small, it is a gift. I haven't earned it. Now, some people say right here, they're like, okay, whoa, whoa. I kind, this kind of sounds good, but there's a little bit, there's, I got something in the back of my mind saying, like, what about like striving and effort? And uh, Paul talks about training in the New Testament. I mean, Jeff, you talk a lot about discipleship, which is about intentionally trying to grow in your faith grow in holiness, being intentional in the Christian walk, this kind of sounds different. Or is what Jesus is saying here the opposite? Like, don't we have a responsibility to play in all this? Like, receiving the kingdom, that, that sounds really passive. And this is an important distinction. You can't achieve your way into God's favor. You can't, you can't live in such a way that God will love you more. You can't live in such a way that God will then give you his kingdom or give you salvation in response. You can't religion yourself into a new life in Christ. All you can do at the start of being a Christian is admit your need for God and ask to receive his forgiveness in Jesus' name, what we talked about with the kids, ABC. And then as we do that, and as we begin to understand now my... um, standing with God, my position in his kingdom is secure and has nothing to do with my performance. I'm covered over by Jesus' sacrifice and now the Holy Spirit is in me to empower me to a new way of life. Yeah, I begin to seek ways of loving God and loving people in the world as response to that. But it doesn't come from a place where I think in doing those things, that will keep God in my life or keep God's love close to me or it will keep me as a child of God. A lot of people live their life as in, if I have a good day of obedience, I'm, I'm tracking with the right things, I can, hit, I can hit the pillow at night and be like, oh yeah, I'm a child of God. And then when we sin and we're in trouble, it's kind of like, oh, I guess mm, maybe I'm on the out, outside of the family. Like God's kind of like partially uh, uh, non-adopted me. It's like, no, we are in Christ, we are secure. So when, when we receive the kingdom, we do move forward in faith, an effort. But it looks, looks very, very different. See, um, some people get anxious about this because they think, well, if everything is grace, if everything is a gift, then where are you going to get people motivated to, like, serve God, like, seriously? And it's this idea that, like, we all kind of need a stick behind us to motivate us. And if we're just talking about receiving the kingdom and receiving grace people can take that and run with it and just kind of be like, yeah, God loves me no matter what, so I'll just do what Paul said in Romans. I'll just keep on sinning so that grace will increase. I'm all about grace. To have more of God's grace in my life, I'll just sin more and more. Jesus died for my sins, no big deal. That's what people are scared is going to happen. But that's never what happens with a real encounter with grace. When you fall in love with someone, in those early um, stages of infatuation where you are experiencing someone's love, and it's in such an intense uh, reception of someone's affirmation and adoration of you. Do you go home and think, that person has just poured so much love into me, 
I'm going to use that as leverage, and now I'm just going to start spewing hatred and animosity towards them and other people. Because they're, they're pouring on all the love, so I don't need to worry about that. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with the counter movement, and I'm just going to start hating on people. I'm so full of love, I get to now hate. No one does that. When you receive that kind of intense love, it begins, you, um, there's a reciprocity, not just from the person who gave it to you, but to other people in your life. People who maybe want to pick a fight with you. You go, I ain't got no time to fight. I'm in love. And you're just going through, you're walking on the cloud. It, that experience of grace, of being loved for who you are, spills out into greater love. And it comes very naturally to want to serve those people. And you begin to serve not just the person who's loving you, but begin to love and serve the people that that person loves and the people in your life who are even your enemies. You begin to love them. And when you experience God's kingdom as a gift, your natural reaction won't be, oh, sweet, so I can just live however I want. I can double down into self-centeredness. It'll be the exact opposite. A genuine encounter with God, receiving his kingdom, of being born again by the Spirit of God, will lead you to say, this is amazing, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? And now, yes, I want to grow as a disciple. I want to love and I want to live for Jesus. But it's fueled from a completely different place. It's I've been given a gift. Is there a greater picture of salvation in the kingdom of God than what we have right here. I've been given this gift and I want to live out of this joy of receiving this. This is special. I don't want to live as if this gift hasn't been given to me. I don't want to live counter to this new promise. See, there's a big difference between Christians who think that what they have to do is achieve the kingdom versus receive the kingdom. If you take two Christians, Christian A, Christian B, Christian A is trying to achieve the kingdom. They think everything boils down to them. They have to be, uh, they, the kingdom, God's power and authority is something that they have to, by their own goodness, consistency, morality, um, spiritual discipline, they're the one that is making um, love and grace, all, all that happen. They're the instigators. And one who is simply living out in response to God's grace in their life, on a superficial level, if you follow those two Christians through the week, there's going to be a lot of overlap in terms of superficial elements. They probably both read their Bible. They probably both go to church. They probably both serve. They probably both pray. But the posture of their hearts is so, so different. Christians who think that it's their job to achieve the kingdom, they look like this. It feels like the world's on their shoulders because they've got to make the kingdom happen. They've got to make, and this is a real fault, I'll just do it from from my own perspective because it's easy for me. There's a lot of pastors who carry the burden of thinking that God's kingdom coming and being established in their church and in their community kind of does boil down to them. They have to make it happen. And so they bear a tremendous weight, and that's why I think pastoral burnout is so high, because they think it's because of their effort. That's the bottom line. That's what's going to make the magic happen. They're not instead saying, how do I um, construct my life around the gospel so that, starting with me, 
but then this community, we can receive the kingdom and it can flow through grace and love through us. That's very different than carrying the anxiety of how do I make this thing happen? How do I get church growth to happen? How do I get people to love Jesus more? There's a lot of, I don't know what, that, what the transfer of that looks like for you in your own life, right? How do I get this person in my life to kind of get it? How do I make the, how do I make God's purposes and plans and, and, and this rescue happen uh, for me in the area of relationships or job or money? I don't know what it is. But the achiever, you, you follow the achieving Christian through their week. They're going to be obedient. But their obedience is born and it's fueled by fear and self-righteousness and anxiety. There's a lot of shoulds. They're constantly reflecting on their own perceived performance and saying, well, how good can I feel about my relationship with God based on how good my religious performance has been? And they have what Dr. Larry Crabb, who's a Christian psychologist, calls a linearity about their relationship with God. The achieving Christian, and we all, and I don't want to make it sound like you are one or the other. We're probably all a mixture of growth, both hopefully growing out of one and into the other, because this is a root sin that calls to all of us. So I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's all or nothing. But I know there are places and times in my life where I'm tempted by this linearity, this idea that, well, I need to do these five things, and I need to do them really well, because if, if I do those things really well, God will give me this. And if I don't do those things really, really well, God's not going to give me this. And Dr. Larry Kraft says that's called a linearity, where you're trying to make this direct connection between my obedience and my faithfulness and God's faithfulness to me. And throughout the scripture, um, that's never something that we're encouraged to, that's not a path that we're meant to pursue because God's faithfulness and love towards us, right? We just sang the song, great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness isn't great because it's a response to our great faithfulness. His faithfulness is amazing because it's a continual stream of redemptive and restorative grace to people who are often not faithful or kind of faithful, brokenly faithful. That's what makes God great. Not that he just responds to us tit for tat, but that grace overwhelms our unfaithfulness. Now the receiver... The receiver is doing some of the same things the achiever is doing, those who receive the kingdom, but their obedience is fueled by joy and humility and peace. There's a fundamental thankfulness. And it's not superficial. You will know when you are connecting and in the presence of someone who is, whose soul is at rest um, because they, have, they know that the kingdom is a gift and they're growing in their understanding of how to walk in grace. And to walk as a receiver of the kingdom, like a little child who just receives from God and says, thank you, thank you, this is amazing. And then takes that love and, and um, redirects it back into the world. That's an amazing way to live. And this, is, this whole thing is such good news because in, in, in a really short order, Jesus essentially says, the kingdom of God God's rule and reign, God's activity in your life, it's not contingent on your religious willpower or your moral aptitude. God is willing to be involved in anyone's life. And the only, um, the only thing that you bring to the table in that is nothing. In 
an honest admission that nothing to the cross I, nothing to, to God I bring, but only to the cross I cling, as one hymn says it. In verse 16, he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. One commentator said, Jesus uses the smallest members of the physical family as a model for members of the family of faith. And he gives children a place of prominence in the kingdom. Through his subversive teaching, Jesus leaves us with a lot to consider about the nature of God's kingdom and our role within it as disciples. I think it would be good for us to consider individually, as a family, as a church, if we're followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us to bless the children in our midst? Shortly, Max is going to be painting the upstairs. That's part of why he's doing that, is to bless the kids. He could just not bring any creativity to it and just say this, and he's, he's showing me pictures this morning. He said, oh, I'm thinking of doing this, and I have this idea for this. He's seeking to bless the children that way. There are people who are seeking to bless the children by signing up to just be with them and to love on them upstairs through the summer. There's lots of ways if we open our eyes to it, little moments of encouragement. You know, coming and looking at these pictures afterwards and then going to the kids, seeking them out and saying, I loved your pictures, that was super awesome. Tell me about your favorite, why is that your favorite stuffy? Tell me about that. Let's be a church who, again, not even just loves kids, that's awesome, but learns from them sees them as little models of what we, how we, the posture that we need to continue to cultivate before God. And let's remember the truth that anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Let's pray. God, as we worship you this morning, we thank you for your word and how it challenges us. And there's a lot uh, of complexity and depth in these few verses, God, and I pray that over this coming week, you would just help to fill in the cracks, Holy Spirit, for how we need to take hold of this message and, and, and have it take root in our lives, God, but the way that it needs to blossom and, and be fruitful is going to look different for each of us, God. But we don't want to hinder children coming to you, and we want to receive your kingdom. We want to live with the pressure off of thinking that all of this is on our shoulders and instead live in the joy of receiving your love and grace and then living in response to that. God, help us to live into that vision. In Jesus' name, amen.